Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Thank you for joining us on the show today. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. And what we get to do here on Top Docs Radio is serve our medical community uh, in a number of ways. One, we get to introduce them to practices and uh, healthcare organizations that they might not have known about. Um, We give them a voice to be able to get the word out about what they're doing. And then in addition to that, we get to, you know, bring on a a variety of associations and healthcare organizations that are aimed at kind of increasing the overall health of our community. Community. And that's one of the folks that I have with us today. I've got uh, Russ LaPerry of Health Connect South, and uh, I'm very happy to have you here. You're the founder of Health Connect South, so we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing. But thanks for taking time to come out and join us today. Thank you so much for your time. So it's a new organization, and it's just mm-hmm. getting ready to get started here in a few days. So take me through what Health Connect South is, and, and uh, I'm sure we're going to be hearing about it as we get going. So tell me a little bit about what we're trying to do with Health Connect South. Sure, absolutely. And thank you again for your time uh, today and the opportunity to be here. We think we are sitting on one of the richest densities of health assets in the entire country uh, here in Georgia. And when you look at that, uh, you can't help but wonder what can you do with that. Um, And one of the things that we want to do with Health Connect South is to get the best of the best here in health to do more together. So how do we go about doing that? Uh, We think it starts with a very high-level roll call of our health assets in the state, uh, bringing together the best, truly the best of the best. And I think that we've uh, uh, proven ourselves to be well on our way. Uh, In 13 days, on September the 15th, at the Woodruff Arts Center, we've shut down the entire thing. We are going to have our first-ever roll call of our health assets, and we really want to feature the fullest spectrum of what's here. Uh, And when I say spectrum, let me kind of share with you what's in that spectrum. Uh, We want to feature everything from as small as you can get, uh, a student with a good idea, uh, graduating into featuring the work of our research universities, our academic medical centers, our uh, physician groups, our hospitals, um, our entrepreneurs, our small, medium, and large businesses, all the way up through global application, Uh, Carter Center Care, CDC, Task Force for Global Health, American Cancer Society, MAP, all of them are here. These are our neighbors. This is who we're honking at driving around 285. Uh, And it's it's an incredible uh, story that we have. And so what? So you have them together. Uh, The question is to do what? Um, and, And for who to do what? And the for who is we want to gather three key constituencies. Um, Students, uh, approximately 100 of your top tier students in health disciplines. Uh, Two, uh, your leading decision makers. And three, your leading innovators in health. So students, innovators, and decision makers. And we want approximately 100 top students self-selected by the schools. Um, We're spending a lot of our time with the R1, the Research One universities uh, throughout the state uh, to ensure we've got a good level of participation there at the student level. And then with your innovators and decision makers, um, uh, there are times when uh, a very fortunate uh, person is both, but oftentimes those are are different people in in an organization, and so we want to attract the right folks. So imagine having the best of the next generation coupled with the best of the current uh, leadership and health uh, as your audience. And so what do we want to do? Um, We want to use this as a platform to prompt interdisciplinary collaborations. One of the things that we do very, very well, and I think everyone that listens to this program would agree, is we gather in industry silos. Um, And that's fine, and that's great, um, but it's not enough. Um, And we don't get a chance to see each other by doing that. And so what we want to do is to literally kind of take the walls down and to be able to say simply, here's what I do. Uh, You may drive by my building, you may work a few floors away, um, and 
you may have no clue the impactfulness that I have in health or what my needs are. And so sort of this one-two punch of what we want to elicit during this gathering is to be able to say, here's what we do at the Carter Center, at CDC, at the Task Force for Global Health. Uh, and here is, uh, you know, the second punch, here's where our needs are. Uh, we want people to bring their humility and to be able to say, here's what we haven't solved for. We may be a top 5% cancer, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's great. There's still cancer. Uh, the work is still in front of us. And what we think, our thesis, is that there's such an incredibly rich density of health assets here. Um, and because we don't gather like this, that by bringing this key group together, uh, or key groups together, that what we will do is when someone says, here's what we haven't solved for, here's what we need, uh, that you're going to have someone stand up and say, oh gosh, that's what I do. Uh, did you know so-and-so? Uh, let me introduce you. And so we think that we can prompt a lot of interdisciplinary collaborations within our community through and with Health Connect South. Um, September the 15th is a start point. Um, we're very much looking at it as an orientation, uh, if you will, although we've been able to pull together some of the best and brightest uh, to be part of the program, uh, including uh, former U U.S. Surgeon General David Satcher, uh, Valerie Montgomery Rice, uh, the new president and dean at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, uh, president Carter uh, is even doing a video for us, uh, which we're very excited about. Mm. Um, just some wonderful, wonderful people. Um, Dr. Eliana Arias, um, who's the number two person over at the CDC, uh, the president of the CDC Foundation. I mean, we have just a wonderful, uh, the deputy uh, chief medical officer at the American Cancer Society. I mean, we have just this rich array of people that have uh, said we will step up and we don't gather like this and this is important. So when they step up, are they going to be mm -hmm. presenting some information is what mm -hmm. you're saying, that mm -hmm. they'll be describing either initiatives that they have underway mm -hmm. that they're trying to generate some awareness yes. about as well as saying, and we can achieve this mm -hmm. initiative's goals much more readily if this group of healthcare professionals is interacting more effectively and, and, and more frequently with this mm -hmm. collection of healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're talking about? It or? is. It is. We want, uh, we want this somewhat to be organic as well. Um, you know, I can give you several examples of things that have already gone on that have been great, uh, partnerships that have happened because of this effort to date, uh, which we're very excited about. But, you know, contextually, if I were listening to this, I, I would share with you, um, it's not about I'm a hospital, uh, you're a hospital, uh, my problem is readmissions of people. Your problem is readmissions of people. Uh, you know, there is, an there is an industry association for that, and you go there for those level conversations, and that's great and appropriate. What we want to do is prompt interdisciplinary collaborations. So we want, I'm a hospital, and my problem is readmissions of people, and you are UPS, and your problem is readmission of packages. What do we have to teach each other? What do we have to learn? Uh, so it's sort of those beautiful incongruencies that we want to prompt. Uh, and we've seen several of those already to date. Um, in our efforts to help launch Health Connect South, uh, we've had some clinical trials that have come about as a result, which we're very excited and we'll share, folks, uh, share with folks uh, on the 15th of September. Uh, organizations that had relationships with individuals that didn't and uh, huge opportunities that came about as a result. Uh, I know in one of the efforts that we had um, earlier uh, uh, in, in preparation of launching Health Connect South, we had two organizations here in town, one an academic institution and another a very prominent international uh, institution here in town, and they sat beside each other at a gathering that we held. Uh, and one said to the other, hey, uh, we understand that you have an entire program on malaria logistics. And uh, the person at the academic institution said, yeah. I bet you're interested in that, aren't you? And they're like, we are eight miles apart. How are we not working together? And I think those types of things exist time and time and time again in our health community. And our job with Health Connect South is to help unlock them, to show what's possible by sharing who's here and where the needs are. So when I say that Health Connect South is a conference, that's that's underselling it. It's not really telling the story. I mean, what? it's more, more I would describe it as an event, I would say it's a platform. Uh, we're using it as a platform to gather the best of the best together. How does that look contextually? Yeah. Uh, it may give the appearance of a conference, okay. but what we're trying to do is really, again, have a roll call of our top health assets and bring them together under one roof. 
It's never been done before. And it's been amazing. So when you're having, you know, one of your, mm-hmm. you know, offerings, is it is it going to be structured such that there are individuals kind of speaking to a given topic, how to tackle mm-hmm. this particular thing or talking about, as you talked about, mm-hmm. there was some research underway that will be kind of brought to light, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, so... The, you, with the with your folks that you have invited, are they going to be presenting information? Yes, they will be. Uh, it'll be a lot of information about the depth of what's here, where the needs are, and how people can connect uh, and help accelerate those needs. Um, and, and we have great depth here. Uh, I think people will be amazed. I know I have been. Outside of being here on our show to help get the word out about what you're doing, what are you doing, you know, on other fronts to to let the community both in the you know general public at large sure. as well as the healthcare community which is right. obviously a big focus how are you letting them know you Sure here? we've been very very fortunate to have been embraced by many uh, of the organizations uh, that lead health in our state. The Medical Association of Georgia, as an example, mm-hmm. uh, they've been a great uh, supporter and friend. Um, uh, if you take a look at our website, which is www.healthconnectsouth.com, mm-hmm. uh, I think that you will see quite an impressive array uh, of organizations that have supported us, uh, which include Georgia Bio, um, uh, SEMDA, the Southeast Medical Device Association, uh, and many, many others at the association uh, level. Uh, in individual organizations that have supported us have just been fantastic. Uh, the CDC Foundation, um, Emory, uh, UPS, uh, you name it, Georgia Tech, Georgia State, uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, the Shepherd Center. Um, it's just an amazing, wonderful, rich array uh, of what is here. Uh, I would challenge anyone to look at our website and try to group them into one category or another. Uh, we've been very fortunate to get a very broad level of support. And so from the standpoint of this is not a one-time thing, obviously. Right. This is a, you know, we, we have a plan over time. Mm-hmm. How frequently will folks be able to come in and interact mm-hmm. with Health Connect South sure. so that they can, you know, help move your initiatives forward? Right, absolutely. Uh, that's a great question and one which we are planning right now uh, to have approximately eight events over the course of the next year. Uh, I don't think that they will be at the size or scale of shutting down the entire Woodruff Arts Center, uh, which is what we're doing on uh, September the 15th. Uh, for our inaugural event, but I think that that very large gathering, and then we break it down into into some more specific areas of interests. Do you have you know some examples of of things that uh, you know are either initiatives that you're trying to pull groups together on? Mm-hmm. You know, can you talk a little bit about, it or do you have to kind of keep it behind the curtain before? Well, I think some of that, yeah. So I'd love to share. Uh, <laughs> however, some of that's about to become very very public, uh-huh. um, and so we're going to release some of that uh, during uh, the fifteenth. But I can tell you that there are some very large initiatives uh, that have already come about as a result of uh, of us pulling this together, and we think that those are are simply uh, and not to discount them. Uh, but granules of evidence of this thesis that if you just know what's here and you know where the need is, that there is such depth and such talent that people will rise to the occasion to say, we can, we can do that. We can do that here. We can do that with each other here. And I'm here and you're here. We can get coffee on Monday and the next Monday and the next Monday. It's not like, you know, someone's a super scientist in Seattle and someone's a top-notch researcher in Japan and let's try to coordinate schedules so we can kind of Skype. I mean, being geographically close is an incredible asset in itself. And I think that our sharing what's here will hopefully do a lot to drive um, uh, our our ability to illuminate the need. Uh, And I think those that are, are in health are naturally inclined to help. And so if you make the need clear, if you if you make the need present, uh, I think the health community will gravitate toward helping fill it. So through this particular platform, are, are you know obviously we're, there's going to be some you know high level, high mm-hmm. altitude, broad facing mm-hmm. you know things like through the CDC for example, sure. and some of those organizations that you talked about. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the fact that you know in our field of medicine that we often end up working in silos, mm-hmm. and we have kind of our set of folks that we're used to collaborating with or that we know about, but. Are you saying that even down to the level of clinical practice, that within a given specialty, a, a healthcare professional might be able to say, we have the ability to help this patient population that you, Joe, clinician in another silo, mm-hmm. may not be aware of, and therefore, if we work together a little bit more closely, then we might actually be able to help 
this group? Is that what you're saying? Or is it taller than that? Not yeah, quite I, so granular down right, at the critical right. I think we're trying line. to, I think we are trying to provide a, a broader level brushstroke. Um, if you can evidence the needs uh, and make clear the opportunities to fill those needs, uh, I think that people will come in and help and help meet them. Uh, whether that takes its uh, form as a clinical practice or best practice, uh, that's certainly up to uh, those that are in attendance. But um, you know, again, our hope is to really prompt um, a lot of interdisciplinary collaborations, uh, things that would be very hard to predict on the front end. <laughs> We've been talking with Russ LaPerry, the founder of Health Connect South, this new platform that's going to be a place for the healthcare community on all levels to be able to get together and learn about ways that they can work together, have access to resources they didn't realize that were here, uh, and, and find out a little bit more about how that they can move certain efforts forward uh, through their own clinical or academic practice. Um, tell me, Russ, I mean, how does how does one get involved with Health Connect South? They want to participate either providing information to the medical community mm -hmm. uh, as mm -hmm. a presenter of some sort? Yeah, maybe? absolutely. So I think uh, the initial way is to be there um, uh, on the 15th of September. And to the degree that uh, people's schedules will allow, we'd very much invite, particularly the folks that listen to this show, uh, are of the caliber that we want to have there. It's your leading decision makers and innovators in health, uh, and hopefully some of the next generation as well of health leadership. So I think that the first thing is to be there. Um, I think the second thing is that it's very important that you realize that we are not trying to have a conference. Uh, we are trying to create a tone and texture where people stick out their hand and say, how can I help you? Not I'm here to sell widgets. Right. Uh, and I think that that's very, a very important thing uh, to, to note, uh, the caliber of attendees that we have, are, are, it's our A-team uh, in our community and health, um, and we're very proud of that, and we want to maintain a lot of integrity around that, uh, such that it's those that can say, I heard you and I can help you, and I don't need to ask anybody because I am the fill-in-the-blank. Yeah. Uh, and so we think that, that that level of enablement is, is critical. So I think, you know, number one, making sure that it's the right folks that are participating, uh, two, making sure that it's folks that care about the community and want to do more within our own community, uh, that can see the need uh, to bring together what is otherwise a fragmented industry in health, um, and uh, really are coming in with the right mindset of uh, wanting to do more um, uh, and, and the ability to help make it happen. Well, I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to give, you know, you access to, you know, a media platform like we have here with Top Docs Radio to be able to share this information with the healthcare community. Uh, we're very much take advantage of uh, earned media, for example, the folks that listen to our show and come here for the content where we're sharing information. A lot of ours is clinical in nature in terms of dealing with, you know, particular health issues, mm -hmm. for example, say breast cancer. Sure. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to be able to give you access to, you know, our medium. And, and uh, you know, of course, you know, as you know, we're being followed uh, by Donald Palmisano of the Medical Association yes. of Georgia, one of the, folk, one He's of the awesome. associations that uh, is uh, obviously collaborating with you on this. So I'm, I'm happy to have you here. Um, you know, you mentioned the website. Are you involved in uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook, other social media we sites do. that folks we have could uh, interface with? Yes, uh, we have a Twitter and a Facebook account. Um, and so I would hope that folks could follow us um, uh, and like us, uh, and uh, more importantly, to be present on the 15th. Um, I, I would, if we have just one, one quick second, um, uh, like to thank uh, the folks that have helped make Health Connect South possible. Uh, these include the CDC Foundation, the Coca-Cola Company, Georgia Tech, uh, Georgia State Care, the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, the Georgia Research Alliance, the American Cancer Society, the Shepherd Center, UCB Farmer, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University, the Task Force for Global Health, Jackson Healthcare, Kimberly Clark, uh, the Medical Association of Georgia, uh, the Morehouse School of Medicine, King and Spalding, the Metro Atlanta Chamber, the Atlanta Business Chronicle, uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting, Fleischman Hilliard, the Technology Association of Georgia, uh, Kilpatrick uh, Townsend, uh, Paul Sinelli Law Firm, uh, Verizon, H-A-N-W, the Atlanta CEO Council, Georgia Bio, SEMDA, Startup Atlanta, the Community Foundation, the Carter Center, um, the Task Force for Global Health, uh, Wellstar, uh, National Vision, and the University of Georgia 
along with Kennesaw State. So as I hope you can see, it's a very rich, very deep bench uh, of support that we have mm-hmm. had to bring our health community together like never before. Yeah, we're pleased to have had a couple of uh, folks that you mentioned there in your list of sponsors and collaborators with your uh, effort here and uh, look forward to having several more of those. Anything you want to leave uh, you know, the, the folks out there listening today with before we have to jump on and talk to Donald? Sure, absolutely. I would say that uh, if you're in Atlanta, and you're in health, if you're in Georgia and you're in health, uh, I would challenge you to think about how much is here and how much more you could be doing with those health assets that are here that want to collaborate. I think that we are disproportionately fortunate to be surrounded by such a rich density uh, of of literally world-class assets in health, and we should start looking at ourselves like that and treating our uh, Atlanta ecosystem uh, accordingly. This is one of... um, uh, very few cities, this is one of very few states that have this level and depth in health, and I think that it's time for us to recognize that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, obviously, the Atlanta metro area is you know, rich with a variety of you know, both academic and clinical expertise that uh, is, uh, you know, I, I, I think it, it's a good time to be able to pull it all together. And I was looking at the registration just to be able to talk for uh, you know, just a quick moment about that piece. If you go to the website and click on registration, you'll see that there's a number of different options there for you. You can actually have an annual membership that would, I guess, get you access to the events that you're hosting throughout the course of the year. So that's something that people want to make sure that they take a look at, not just the upcoming event on the 15th. Correct. So thank you for coming out on our show. We kind of put it together here at the last minute, and I'm really excited that we were able to get you on. Anything else that you wanted to leave us with? Just thank you very, very much. And for those of you listening, uh, I really hope that you will take a moment and consider joining us. Uh, I think we're onto something very special and uh, would love for uh, the highest level of our health community to help support it. And thank you. Well, we're going to be doing some partnerships. We call them p- power partnerships through the through the show, where we link up with organizations that have a variety of topics to talk about that uh, could use some additional uh, information getting out to the community that they're facing. So I'll throw that invite out there. Obviously, you. you're going to be an ongoing effort. You're in our backyard. Uh, it's the kind of organization that we like to collaborate with. So I'll throw that out there now. And if you have an opportunity, you can come back with uh, colleagues that are also part of the organization of Health Connect South to be able to share more information about what you have going on at a given time. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity if you choose to take it. And I want to say thanks again for making time of your day. I'm going to jump over and talk to Donald Palmasano of Medical Association of Georgia. Thanks for sticking with us. Up next on the show, I'm going to be sitting down with Donald Palmasano of the uh, Medical Association of Georgia. He's the CEO and executive director for the association. I'm very happy to have you out here on the show today, Donald. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. We really do appreciate it. So from what I understand now, the, the Medical Association of Georgia has over 7,500 members um, and, and you've been around, obviously, for quite a long time, and one of the big roles that the association has for the medical community at large is advocacy, trying to ensure that you know, legislation that's out there affecting our space is something that makes sense um, and that promotes the overall community health you know, as it should. So tell me a little bit about kind of the overarching mission of the association, and we'll kind of jump down into some of the things about it. Okay. Uh, th- first of all, thank you for having us on the show. We really do appreciate it. Uh, the Medical Association of Georgia has been around since 1849. Uh, what we are primarily known for is that we are the uh, largest association in the state that represents physicians. We have nearly 7,500 members. Uh, what we are known for is our advocacy at the state capitol, but also uh, before administrative bodies. And so we represent uh, the physicians and the patients' interests before, before government. And so uh, one of our overarching missions is to ensure that uh, we can ease the administrative burdens on physicians, but also to ensure that there is access for patients. Well, you know, I would assume that most of the physicians out there are are members of the organization. It's one of those that would, you know, obviously be kind of automatic. But, you know, if there's um, not some folks that are currently a member of the association, I would assume there's some benefits for being a member from uh, access to educational offerings that, that might be out there, conferences that you put on. I've seen on the website you have a number of events throughout the year that are educational or, um, you know, uh, 
administrative talking about various issues. So there's got to be some benefits for somebody if they've not yet joined the organization that they want to jump in and, and become a member. Uh, absolutely. Uh, aside from our work uh, before the legislature and the administrative bodies, we also advocate for physicians before third-party uh, third payers. And so when you're talking about the health insurance companies and some of the administrative burdens that are placed on physicians, um, we're able to, through our contacts with the health insurers, to get the physician in contact with the right person that they need to speak to to resolve some of those issues. So that's a member benefit that we provide. Also, we have town hall forums that we do for physicians. And some of the latest forums have been on uh, Pulse, uh, Physician Order Life-Sustaining Treatments, or HIPAA, or um, we have some coming up that deal with uh, – emergency coverage, that type of thing in disaster situations. And really, it's to educate physicians um, and, and patients as to uh, what's going on in healthcare. We also provide newsletters and journals um, that discuss various legal topics that are of interest to physicians. Well, you were talking a little bit about uh, third-party payers. I mean, that kind of brings me to an important topic that kind of uh, moved over the horizon this year and the new health laws, the Affordable Care Act. Tell me a little bit about, you know, the impacts that that have had on our, you know, state physicians and, you know, your your role with that and some of the things you're focused on as it relates to the Affordable Care Act. Well, of, of particular importance with the Affordable Care Act came uh, the health insurance exchanges. So the health insurance exchanges where um, patients can now go and buy um, health insurance through an exchange, um, have now gone into effect. And so one of the issues that we've seen with the health insurers is that in order to save costs, they have really narrowed their networks that patients um, can utilize to see their physicians. So that's been a big problem because what's happening is um, if you have a chronic condition um, and, and, and you need and you regularly have seen your particular physician, well, that physician may not be on the network now. I'm I'm curious about that I mean, as it relates to the the idea of a third party payer, whether it's you know a government entity or a, a commercial um, insurer. I mean, what is it that? How do you intend to save money by including this doctor but not that doctor? Is it because this doctor over here, who's going to be in the program, was willing to accept certain contract rates that the other one wasn't? Is that how how they're saving money by reducing the 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 size of a given group? Well, I would have to d defer an opinion on that from the health insurance industry, but I can tell you what is happening yeah. is that they are looking at physicians and comparing them based on cost. Now, here's the issue. Let's say that you're a neurologist and you specialize in seeing multiple sclerosis patients, okay? So your costs are going to be higher than a neurologist who sees um, a patient that doesn't have that condition. Mm -hmm. So in the past, when a patient would buy a policy, they would have a number of neurologists, which included an expert in multiple sclerosis. Well, what's happening now is they're not including the multiple sclerosis neurologists because it's a higher cost. So when the patients are now buying these policies, the real question is what type of policy are they buying? And then what makes it a little bit more complicated from the patient's perspective also is that when you look, there is a lot of confusion as to which physicians are actually on the network for the health insurance exchanges because there's been some information that has been posted that says this particular doctor's in the network, and then when the patient goes to verify, it turns out that physician is not in the network. Mm. And so a lot of this has fallen onto the physicians when in actuality it's been the health insurers who have put out these products that just don't have the network adequacy that's required to serve the patient population. It's frustrating because while, yes, we can say that more people are walking with a health insurance policy in their hands, um, obviously, based on, you know, what we're talking about here, that, that, that may or may not mean great things for a person with that policy just because they can't get access to care that, or at least in-network care, that it would be applicable to them or their particular family's needs. Oh, absolutely. And then they have these, these very high deductibles mm -hmm. that are now falling back on, on the physicians when these patients come into their offices. Yeah, because the physician now becomes a collector. They ha you, you have to, you know, I, I know from our own physician's practice standpoint, that's not something you can waive. You can't, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, you can't say, oh, don't worry about the deductible or the copay or whatever it is. You, you have to handle that. And so now you're forced to be in a position where you're trying to deliver care for your patient, which is your purpose. Right. But from the business side of things and the regulatory side of things, you're also now having to 
talk about some pretty significant financial sides of that relationship that really uh, kind of cloud the waters a little bit and, and make it a little bit more difficult, I think, for, you know, both for the physician and the patient. Oh, absolutely. And, and one of the things that patients really need to do is that before they purchase this policy, they really have to look at that network. Because if they do need a surgery, um, you need to make sure that the hospital is in the network, your treating physician is in the network, but you also need to consider, is the radiology group in the network? Is the anesthesiology group in the network? Because what may happen is that although you're treating physician is in the network and the hospital is in the network, that anesthesiologist may not be in the network. So you may get a bill that is for out-of-network coverage, which you're going to be paying 100% for, depending based on what your policy requires. Big surprises in the mail, I think, for a lot of folks. You know, when it comes to, you know, the issue of of reimbursement and, and, uh, you know, insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, you know, talk about payment parity, what that means. Well, when you hear payment parity, um, one of the things that came out of the Affordable Care Act was a push to um, ensure that more physicians go into primary care. And so when we say primary care, we're relating to family physician, internal medicine, OBGYN, but also pediatricians. And so under the Affordable Care Act for the years 2013 and 2014, physicians were going to be paid Medicare rates for seeing Medicaid patients for primary care services. And this is very important because Medicaid, which is a state and federal partnership and serves uh, lower income patients, the problem with Medicaid is that it doesn't cover the cost of providing the care. So when a physician sees a Medicaid patient, the physician is eating some of that cost, but because of what physicians are trained to do and the people that generally go to right. become physicians, they see those patients because yes. it's about ensuring that the patient remains healthy. Right. Well, you know, and and so for the Medicaid side of things, um, you know, how does that – I know Georgia was kind of on, on focus a little bit about the Medicaid side of things as it related to the ACA, and, and apparently that's where a lot of the folks that were kind of affected by ACA were – I wasn't insured before, now I am, they kind of fall into that bucket. Is that, was that right? And a lot of the people that were previously uninsured are in that kind of boat. They're in that lower end Correct. economically, and so they're Medicaid patients. Correct, based on the standards that are set by the Affordable Care Act. And are those patients are, – are, you know, I'm not very versed in the Medicaid side of things. Um, you know, are the networks that those patients have access to, are they even further reduced over, because it's a government, you know, run program, are they even further reduced in terms of network accessibility versus a third-party payer that's, say, Blue Cross Blue Shield? Correct. And what's happened is what we know um, – Numbers from around 2009 to about 2012, we noticed that there was a 15% drop in physicians participating in Medicaid, and that goes back to the cost issue of what Medicaid pays, but also the administrative hassles that come with dealing with the care management organizations that run the Medicaid program. Lots of paperwork. Exactly. And one of the things is that at the end of this year, the payment parity will go away from the Affordable Care Act. So the federal government was paying for um, that increased payment to primary care uh, for Medicaid patients. But that's just temporary. So now the primary care physician even is going to be facing the same experience. They're going to be facing um, the the increased cost burden that comes along with that. So right now there's a bill in Congress, which is um, Senate Bill 2694, that would extend that payment parity under the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, we're very interested in hoping that federal bill uh, moves forward. I, it w- one would hope that that would, would be able to move forward just because one of the things I'm aware of as it relates to primary care is that there's quite a paucity of primary care access available out in the rural communities, and that's where a lot of these folks are. Absolutely. Um, so... You know, when you are further reducing what what you can be paid for, I mean, because let's face it, it's a business. You have bills to pay as a physician, just just as anyone else does. So, if a, a large population that you would be facing is coming in, and, and essentially you're you're almost working for free, why go out there? You know, why not come to an area where there's you know at least a mix of people that are going to come to you that have some. Uh, commercial insurance that would, you know, let you pay the bills while you, you know, take care of the folks that are a little more in the needy situation. And, you know, you can, you know, absorb that impact a little bit better. Absolutely. And and what's very important is when you have a physician come to a community. And so aside from obviously better health 
and the health outcomes that result from a physician coming into a community. Physicians also bring an economic impact into a community. Mm -hmm. And that's what we tell the medical students is that when you get out of medical school and you go start your practices after your residency, you will be seen as a leader in the community. And part of what you bring is that you will generate, physicians in this state generate more than uh, $1 billion in state and local taxes, but they also generate more than $16.5 billion in wages and benefits. So there is a positive economic impact when a physician comes to your community. And so when we start talking about these government payers and the hassles that the physicians deal with, it's, you know, we've got to find some solution to this because it improves the health of the state, but also the economics of the state. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to be paying close attention to these issues. It would just seem to me that uh, some of this stuff is common sense, and, and uh, we're, we're kind of getting in our own way as it relates to making our communities more, more healthy, particularly like we talked about, and the ones that are not fortunate enough to live in a robust medical community like we have here in Atlanta. And, and you were talking about the economic impact of a, you know, the presence or absence of physician practices. Obviously, the physician themselves and their office, they're going to employ people, so that's going to have an economic impact just in and of itself. But beyond that, you know, when someone's looking to move into a community or not, what is my access to health care? Do I have good doctors available for my family? Because I'm probably going to need some. Uh, so uh, the presence or absence of those doctors being around in a community and whether it's worth it for them to be out there could also further impact the, the economic impact indirectly just because, you know, those folks want to move into a community that has good doctors. Oh, absolutely. And, and one of the other things to look at is that uh, when, when we're talking about Medicare, which is a program that cares for the elder population. Well, for the last 12 years, there have been 17 patches to fix the payment system Uh, to which physicians work under uh, with Medicare. And so the federal government has continually kicked this can down the road. So what's happened is that this past April, physicians were faced with a 24% cut. Yeah, over a year, yeah. Exactly. So if that cut goes into effect, imagine the number of jobs that would be lost from a physician's practice because they're not able to maintain the, the, the people in their office. We did a study with the American Medical Association on the economic impact that physicians bring. One of the things that that study showed is that in Georgia, physicians bring over 88,000 jobs to Georgia. So imagine that that now you're now hurting the patient population, the elder population with access to care issues, and so they're not going to be able to get to see their physician or keep their physician. Then what is the economic impact that now you have more people that will not have a position and employment. Well, you know, and and all of this, you know, I can't imagine year over year, you know, my 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 company coming to me and saying, "Well, well CW, this year we're going to pay you 25% less than we paid you last year." Um tomorrow that goes into effect. I mean, <laughs> dealing with that is is severe enough in and of itself and and defies logic. But then beyond that, do you think that that physician uh or physicians are going to encourage their young young kids to go into the field of medicine because it's so awesome? No, I don't think so. So we're already outpacing our graduation rates in terms of the healthcare sector, both physician and nursing, in terms of our aging populations growing in size and volume faster than we're producing healthcare professionals. And now we're disincentivizing you to go into the field to begin with because we're really going to make you work really hard to get what little we're going to pay you. So it's a little bit frustrating, and I'm very hopeful that organize, organizations such as the Medical Association of Georgia um, will be able to, you know, have some influence on sanity as it comes to trying to find ways. Obviously, we need to adjust our healthcare system. You know, I wouldn't argue that, but uh, it just seems like the ways that we're going about it sometimes just don't really make a whole lot of sense when they come to implementation. You're correct, and what we're seeing is that um, student debt has steadily increased for physicians since 1990. We're talking the average phys- the average debt for a physician um, related to medical education now is $175,000. My, my now ex-wife, um, who is an oral surgeon in the city, 300000 when she yeah. came out of school in residency. And, 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 and what, that's very important to know because what happens when these physicians come out with that much debt, their options are limited on what they can do. 
gone are the days where they could just go to the bank and hang up a shingle and say, I'm open for practice, and I can go to an underserved area. I can go to these um, less accessible areas that patients are having issues with because what's happening is with that amount of debt, they're not able to secure the financing needed to open up an office. So their options are going into an employed setting with a health system or with a large multi-specialty group, but their options are limited. And so what we're doing is we're seeing that with this increased debt that has not been able to get under control, therefore I starts limiting these options for these physicians coming out of school. What are we, you know, are are there thoughts on possible ways that we can address that? I mean, you know, obviously you can't make school free, but, um, you know, are there some proposals or suggested ways that we can approach trying to reduce that kind of burden for the folks that are spending so much time getting the education that's required to provide these types of services? Right now, there have not been any um, proposals out there that would solve the issue at this point. Uh, one of the things is that debt is going up education-wise uh, for all professions. Mm-hmm. And looking at the different professions, it's ever-increasing debt. And so we as as a society have got to decide how are we going to continue to educate these physicians. But more importantly, um, there has been a lack of residency spaces within Georgia. So we're educating these physicians but then we don't have the residency slots to move keep out them to go further in their training. Correct. So they're having to go to other states, and the reason being is that the residency slots, the numbers were placed based uh, in 1996. Based part of it was the population of that state. Well, Georgia has grown um, immensely over the last couple of years, and so now with t- almost 10 million people in this state, we don't have enough residency slots to um, provide for the medical students that are coming out. So we're losing 200 or so medical students a year to other states. That's something I was not aware of. Are you saying then that with medical programs that the number of residency slots they can offer is restricted um, in some way based on a a historic census kind of data? It is. It's based on the funding that the federal government can provide. I didn't know that. And so uh, Governor Deal has been very good about – two years ago, placing money um, for some of these residency slots to try to have the state shoulder some of the burden uh, from the federal government. But again, what we've known is wherever physicians do their residency is where they tend to practice. Yeah, they're going to plant their roots there. They've been there for two to four years or more. So it only makes sense. They've gotten roots there, and then typically where those residency programs are located, rare is it a, a community that's not attractive in some form or fashion. So it would totally make sense. You know, by that point in time, I mean, when the physician gets to residency, they've already been, you know, what, 8, 10, 12 years into the pr- program. So, right. you know, it's time to stop and set down roots. I don't really want to move across the country. Exactly. And by that point, sometimes they have families, kids are in school. It's hard to move the kids out of uh, out of that area. So it's one of the things that we're looking at is how do we get more funding for graduate medical education so that we can bring better health to those communities that are lacking that access to care. And obviously, you know, in addition to looking at the funding of it from a from you know the the student debt and the um, that side of things, but it which seems like it would make common sense to reevaluate the. Uh, the number of residencies that are <laughs> available because and, obviously we need them everywhere, not just in Georgia, but uh, everywhere. So why wouldn't we want to go back and revisit those old numbers? Absolutely. So we've been talking with Donald Palmisano, the CEO and executive director of the Medical Association of Georgia. And and, and something that, that came up earlier uh, before we went on was the Think About It program. Tell me about that. Uh, the Think About It program um, is is uh, put on by the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation, which is one of our subsidiaries. Um, the whole purpose of this campaign is to curb prescription drug abuse that Georgia is having such a problem with. Uh, we've been successful in getting the word out and bringing awareness to, to patients, to law enforcement, but also to physicians and other health care providers. Uh, we have partnerships uh, with uh, Walgreens. Um, CVS, Kaiser Permanente, uh, the Department of Public Health, whereby we're putting um, in every prescription that is being um, delivered to a patient um, a one-pager stapled to the bag that outlines what you should do with your medications. One is take them as prescribed, um, keep them safely um, locked away, 
Um, but also, when you're finished with them, dispose of them properly and don't share don't your medications. Them. Save them. Exactly. <laughs> Use them later when you feel like you need something. So I, we, we've, uh, you know, through these partnerships, we've been able to get that message out. But it's something that uh, we're, we're taking this program very seriously because this is um, a problem of epidemic proportions in Georgia. Um, when you start to see that the cost of heroin is less than prescription drugs, you you really have a problem. I would guess so. I, I would never have guessed that either. And, and one of the things is that uh, the campaign started uh, – because of a gentleman who lost his grandson to prescription uh, drug abuse. And he's very passionate about the campaign, and we were honored for him to bring it over to us. Mm. And so we've been working on a statewide campaign to continue this education because we as uh, you know, representing physicians have to do our part in, in trying to curb uh, this particular issue. With the, you know, the ex- ever-expanding kind of digital age that we're in now in the age of, you know, Internet and, and uh, you know, electronic communication, electronic medical records. I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm curious, Are the do, do the pharmacies somehow tie together in any form or fashion at all in terms of at least some modicum of information that such that if I'm getting a prescription filled here at this corner, Walgreens, and then I try to go to a CVS, you know, Across town, is there anything out there from an electronic communication perspective that kind of helps get in the way of that? Uh, currently, the state has a prescription drug monitoring program that we worked closely with um, uh, various healthcare providers in the healthcare community in getting this passed a couple years ago. Um, one of the things is that that program does is that when the physician or the pharmacist checks the monitoring program they can see where that particular patient has been getting their prescription medications. Part of, one of the issues with the prescription drug monitoring program that we're working with um, the gov- you know, with, with Georgia Drug and Narcotics and with obviously all the other interested stakeholders in this is that we need real-time information so that the physician, as they're checking it, can have the real-time information so that they – and the pharmacist also so they can know where these patients are getting – uh, their prescription drugs, and if they're abusing uh, the system. Also, what we're looking at is, under the law right now, the pharmacist or the doctor has to actually check the program versus being able to delegate it to someone in their office. Because the reality of how busy pharmacists and physicians yeah. are, you've got to have that delegation where, and, and put the accountability on the that's physician, right. yeah. and that's fine. But we want to make sure that the information is being utilized so that we can um, try to address this issue through um, through this regulation. That's great to know about that program. Is there more information about that on the website as well? Absolutely. If you go to www.mag.org, and MAG is, stands for Medical Association of Georgia, and if you look under our organizations, you'll see the MAG Foundation, and it will bring you to the Think About It campaign. Great. Um, before we run out of time, one of the last but not least, I wanted to kind of touch on the uh, the Medicare uh, Sustainable Growth Rate, or SGR, you know, and, and kind of talk a little bit about what you're trying to achieve as it relates to that. That kind of goes back to our conversation earlier where we were talking about, oh, by the way, we're paying a quarter less this year than we were last year. So tell me a little bit about that initiative before we have to go. Uh, what, what happened over the course of about a year up until about April – we uh, pretty much um, medicine came together and agreed to a new alternative payment system that would fi- that would fix the sustainable growth rate, which determines how physicians are paid under Medicare. It had bipartisan support. Unfortunately, the measure did not pass uh, by the by the date that it needed to pass, which was at the end of March. And so, going forward, the bill is still alive. Um, the bill in Congress um, is H.R. 4015, or S-2000. It is an agreement where organized medicine um, has stood by the bill with the Republicans and the Democrats. And what this bill basically does is changes the payment system so that um, the the Medicare system can continue to go long-term and ensure access um, to those patients who have paid into this system for quite a long time, <laughs> yeah. and they do deserve to keep that benefit. Yeah, I find it ironic that the at least I'm sure there's more than it uh, than than just this element, but it seems to me that when we talk about Medicare reform, 
the only thing I've ever really seen is this year we're going to pay the doctors even less. That, that's, <laughs> that's just what it seems like. Uh, it, it's as if somehow the notion is out there that we've been overpaying you for all this time, and now we're finally catching on that we're overpaying you, and we're going to you know, chop it down. But it, um, when, when you look at the fact that you compare what, what a physician is reimbursed for providing care on the Medicare program versus commercial, real, uh, commercial uh, insurers, I mean, it's significantly less straight away. So I, I don't really follow that logic. So I'm hopeful that we can kind of bring some, uh, I don't know, for me, I guess, personal, it's a personal opinion, but common sense to what we're doing here. Absolutely. One of the benefits of this particular bill is that it encourages um, physician leadership within team-coordinated care. And so as physicians develop alternative payment models um, and also different models of care for their patients, we believe that you can make the system sustainable over the long term to continue to ensure that um, our eldest patients um, continue to receive the care that they've so paid paid into That's right. into the system over the last 40, 50 years. I, I shudder to think what the system is going to look like when I get there. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I share that same concern. <laughs> well, I want to say thank you very much, Donald Palmasano of the Medical Association of Georgia for making time to come out today. Um, before we jump off, I know obviously we've given out the, the, the website for the Medical Association, but do you have social media presence out there also that the listeners might need to know about? Yes. If you want to follow uh, me on Twitter, it's D Palmasano, P-A-L-M-I-S-A-N-O, um, M-A-G um, is my Twitter handle, but also... Um, at MAG1849 is the Medical Association of Georgia Twitter handle. Okay, and I'll certainly link up to that through the Top Docs Radio um, social media sites on Facebook and Twitter, and those are uh, both Twitter and Facebook is Top Docs on BRX. You can link up with the Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia website for some information about wounding if you have a need or for, for you or a loved one. That's hbomdga.com. Um, Obviously, a whole lot more issues that we can talk about that as it relates to the, the medical association. So I'm very hopeful that uh, Donald, you or, and or colleagues of yours will be rejoining us here on the show to, uh, to get more information out about uh, these important issues that affect us all. We would love to, and we want to thank you for your time. This has been great. All right. Well, I'm very excited to uh, have you guys coming back. We'll, we'll, we'll get a plan together, and we'll look forward to some more great information from the Medical Association of Georgia. Do you have any kind of events coming up just real quickly before we go? Our annual meeting will be in October, um, and it's going to be in Callaway Gardens. It's October um, 18th, that weekend. Uh, that weekend, you will see about 200 to 250 physicians coming together to determine the policy of our association for which we base our decisions on. And the physicians at that meeting always, first and foremost, have their patients' best interest at heart. We'll turn around and share this broadcast with the folks that you know so they can get access to this great information. Thanks again, Donald Palmasano, Medical Association of Georgia. We'll see you all same time, same place next week.